Good morning once again. So it's been, it's been a, um, a funny week for me this week because um, Friday was a deadline for some essays I've been doing. And I've been doing these essays for the past couple of months. And over Christmas, I've been spending most of my spare time studying and writing essays. I haven't really taken much time um, to, to sort of to relax and to enjoy it which is fine because I actually quite enjoy writing essays, but um, obviously when you've, got, when you've got kids and stuff like that, you, you, you'd like to have a little bit more time. So I've been, I've been looking forward to this week, to getting the essay, um, getting the deadline over and done with, because I thought when the deadline comes, whether I've done the essays or not, it's too late. You know, I've got to, something has to change then. So I've been working really hard, and I've been studying away, and um, uh, it's been quite nice. Um, as many of you know, I'm an avid cricket fan, so the Ashes has been going on in Australia. So I've, um, I'm one of these people, quite a night owl, I'm one of these people who finds that um, I'm less effective uh, during the day. I, I sort of come to life at night, and I, I, um, it's been quite good because I've been able to start studying when, when Joe's gone to bed, and then I've turned the radio on. I've had the Ashes commentary from Australia, um, and I've, I've been typing until the early hours, and that, that's worked well. It's been good, apart from the fact that England were abysmal, but that's not for now. In the past week, though, I've, re- I've been reminded of something from childhood, because I got a few bits and pieces for Christmas, um, chocolate and sweets and that sort of thing. And Joe, knowing that I was studying up in our office um, late at night, she one day, shortly after Christmas, gathered these things together. There's only three or four items, but took them upstairs and put them um, just next to my desk. And so I went up there one night and saw this little pile, and I thought, oh, brilliant, excellent. That would be nice, a little snack in the middle of the night, fantastic. I was, I was typing away, and after three days, I suddenly realised I hadn't touched it. I was aware it was there, and I was pleased it was there, and I, was, I, I, you know, I, I wanted galaxy chocolate. I love galaxy chocolate. Um, and I had these minstrels sitting there. I thought, brilliant, looking forward to that. But I hadn't opened them. And I was reminded that in my childhood, every year we would get a stocking. And this sounds really out of date now, but... At the bottom of the stocking, every year, don't ask me why, there was an apple and a satsuma. Now, we always had a well-stocked fruit bowl. It's not like, you know, we only got fruit once a year or anything, but these things were always there, an apple and a satsuma. And they were the last things to come out of the stocking. And I always remember, I used to keep these two bits of fruit, and I used to put them to one side. And even though they were just two bits of fruit that had no... They, weren't, they were the least exciting of everything I got for Christmas. I would eat everything else, I'd play with everything else, but I wouldn't touch the apple and the satsuma. Because for me, they, represent, they reminded me of the excitement of Christmas. They were, they were the thing in the deepest, darkest depths of that stocking. There was something about them that I, I couldn't bring myself to eat them because then I wouldn't have them anymore. They'd be gone. And I even remember one year, it got to about March. And my mum said, what is that smell? It was a hot day, it was when the the spring sunshine had just started coming through and and these two bits of fruit were sitting there. And when she picked them up, they were green and furry and moist and very unpleasant underneath and we had to get rid of them. And I couldn't bring myself to eat them. And so I'd let them rot and fester. 
because I couldn't bring myself to, 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 to eat them. And this week, as I've been studying, I still felt that reluctance to tuck in to these things I've been given for Christmas. I still had this, this childlike um, feeling of, no, because when I've eaten them, it's gone. It's finished. When I've eaten them, that's it. It's over. And so I forced myself to start tucking in this week, and I've, I've managed to do it, and once you get the taste, you can't stop. So it didn't last for long. But today's passage is about commitment. Jesus is talking with his disciples and there's a crowd of people around him. And Jesus has just um, foretold his death. He's just had um, the, 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 the conversation saying, look, I will be executed. I will be crucified. I will be taken by a mob and killed. And Peter takes him aside and says, you can't talk like this. People are just, are just getting it. People are just beginning to, to buy into what you're saying. They're beginning to realise that you're, you're a bit special, a bit different. You can't go saying this because it's not, it's not good PR. And we have that scene, don't we, when Jesus rebukes Peter and says to him, get behind me, Satan. He sees that, that Peter is, is, is following the way of the world. Peter is looking and saying, no, 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 don't. Look, people are just beginning to like you. Don't say that. They'll think you're mad. They, they, they won't get it. Don't say that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Don't try and dissuade me. And shortly after that, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, we're reading from verse 34. Jesus goes on to say this. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is talking about commitment. Jesus is challenging us, saying, how committed are you? What are you prepared to give up? Like that example earlier, what are you prepared to pay? Now, commitment, is, commitment can be a dangerous thing, because sometimes you can unwittingly fall into commitment. Um, a few years ago, Joe and I had some friends around for dinner and um, I, I'm not particularly au fait um, with the latest fads and fashions and stuff like that. Um, that won't come as a massive shock to many of you, I'm sure. Um, and uh, this was just about the time that the, the whole sort of Kath Kidson, uh, chintzy floral stuff was becoming fashionable. And a friend of ours is a designer and she's very up to speed with the latest designs, very trendy and everything. And um, her and her husband came round for dinner one night and I helped Joe set the table and everything and um, I was pretty sure in my mind that we'd set out just fairly plain napkins. Nothing exciting, just functional, just napkins. But when we sat down to dinner with, with our friends, I suddenly became aware 
that there were these hideous, chintzy, florally, colourful things that looked like something out of a 1970s sitcom. They, they, were, they were horrendous. I thought, oh, no. And I actually I said, I said, Joey, Joey, what's come, where, where did these come from? I said, they're horrible. And Joe sort of looked at me, and before she answered, I, I said, for goodness sake, when we've got people around, can't I put normal ones out? Where did these things come from? And she said, Sarah brought them. Sarah being the wife of the couple sitting at the table. And I had, the, I had this really horrible sinking feeling. But I thought, well, I've, I'm committed here, unwittingly. I didn't mean to commit myself to, to such an unfortunate instance, but I was committed, and so I had to go with it. And so I kind of... I apologised, but I sort of fought the corner and explained that I wasn't particularly up to speed with fashions, and she, she thought it was hilarious, thankfully. But you see, I've committed myself. I, she could have taken real offence, um, and they, they are still friends now, which is a big relief. But sometimes we can commit to things without, without necessarily thinking, without necessarily taking on board the potential repercussions. It can be a very dangerous thing. Christianity can be a bit like that. Because for many of us, Christianity begins with the human relationship. Not everybody. Some people have um, a a godly moment. Some people respond to a a worship song or or they're prayed for and they just feel feel the Holy Spirit coming, coming upon them. But for a lot of people, statistically they say that the majority of people, it begins with a human relationship. That's why we do things like the Alpha Course. That's why we have um, uh, outreach events like um, breakfasts or curry nights and that sort of thing. Because when I became a Christian, I thought the whole idea was crazy. I went along because um, Jo was keen and um, I thought, okay, well I'll support her. I can't see it's dangerous, I can't see any harm in it, I just think it's insane. So um, I started going along, and we started going along to Christchurch in stock, and it was because of the people I met down there who showed integrity, intelligence, um, they're just normal people, they were just good, decent, nice people, and I got to the point where I thought, well, I must be missing something, because these people are clearly not insane, these people are very, very sane, most of them, but you see, I thought, I must be missing something, because the human relationship had formed the human relationship had formed. And through that, I got myself to a point where I was prepared to commit. But of course, when we build up a friendship with somebody, we can see the good works that they do. We can, we can see that, they, that they're good people, that they have good values. They might keep good company they might just, just have that, that presence that emanates from some people where you just think, you're, you're, a, you're a decent person. But Jesus says that's not enough. Jesus says being a good person isn't enough. If you want to follow me, you should do good works, yes. You should, you should show a commitment to living a good and decent life. But anyone can do that. Anyone can, can commit to doing that.
if anyone truly wants to follow me, if anyone wants to truly know me, to become a disciple of mine, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, of course, we've got to remember that when we hear those words, the cross has kind of become a bit sanitised in modern Western culture. Because when we talk about the cross, we instantly think of Jesus. We instantly think of, of the resurrected Christ. We think of the Holy Spirit. The cross is kind of a positive symbol. It's quite a, a happy symbol for us. Because we know that it was through the cross that, that we can have salvation. But this conversation took place before the crucifixion. This conversation took place with people for whom the cross was this terrible, terrible thing. Some people say it's, you know, when you wear a cross around your neck, it's a bit like wearing an electric chair today. But I don't think that quite does it justice. Because the cross was barbaric. The cross was so gruesome. It was, it was horrendous. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, what he's saying is, be prepared to put yourself through the most painful, barbaric, gruesome, horrid experience you can possibly imagine. Choose to do that if you want to follow me. That's a challenge. That is a, that's a huge challenge. Now, thankfully, I haven't ever met anybody who's actually had that, that challenge become a reality, who's actually had to go through the most, most painful, gruesome, barbaric thing that they can possibly imagine. But that's what we've got to be prepared to do. It's a challenge when we ask ourselves, are we prepared to do that? Are we prepared to, to take up our cross, to embrace our, our, our biggest fear, to embrace what Jesus went through? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever thinks that they've got the means or the, the, the strength to find salvation for themselves, whoever, whoever thinks they don't need Jesus, they can somehow find a shortcut to God. Well, you can't. Jesus made it absolutely clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. I remember when I first, uh, no, it's my second job actually in the city and after six months, um, after six months I had an appraisal and they were an American firm and they were very, in, they were very into their sort of corporate propaganda and at times it was, it was quite amusing because it was out of sync with, um, with the English psyche or British psyche. Um, and one of, the, one of the things I had to do for this appraisal, I sat down with my boss and there was a questionnaire and the very first question on the questionnaire said, do you always put the company first? And it was one to five, one being absolutely, five being never. 
and it was my six-month appraisal, pay reviews were coming up in a few months, my boss was sitting there, so of course I circled number one. Yep, always put that first. And he, he took, the, took the questionnaire, ripped it up, he had another copy, gave it to me and he said, now answer it honestly. He said, he said, if you're answering that honestly, you'll do what I do and put five. He never put the company first. And I said, well, <laughs> hang on a second, I mean, what makes you say that? I didn't realise you were that disillusioned. He said, no, I'm not disillusioned. But he said, I'll never put the company over my family. I'll never put the company over my health. I'll never put the company um, over my friends. If I get a call on a, a weekend, I might take it, but only if I'm not required to be doing something else. Only if I'm not with my, with my wife or if I'm not with my kids, if I'm at home on my own, I might take it. But I'm not putting the company first, No. And I wouldn't expect anybody in my team to ever put the company first. So, answer that honestly. And so I did. And thankfully there weren't any repercussions. But that stuck with me. That stuck with me because what he was saying effectively is don't commit to something that you're not actually committed to. Don't commit to something you're not actually committed to. It's similar to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying if you want to be a follower of me, this is hard. If you want to be a follower of me, then I might ask things of you that are very uncomfortable. Things of you that fill you with dread. I might ask things of you that, before you met me, you would have run a mile from. It reminds me of Jonah, when he was first charged with God, by God with the task of going to Nineveh. And Jonah runs a mile. He, he tries to escape and thankfully, miraculously, God doesn't give him the choice of escape, really. But actually, we're all a bit like Jonah. We would all have that inclination to run, were it not for the challenge of the gospel. Were it not for the challenge of Jesus. Because he warns us, he says, look, this is going to be tough. There are going to be times where your faith feels like a burden. Or there might be times when your faith feels like an embarrassment because it feels like it's so out of sync with the rest of the world that's where it's helpful when we, when we read to Timothy and Paul writes to Timothy preach the word in all seasons well at the moment it feels like we're out of season it feels like at the moment often that people, people have respect for the church they see it as an institution it does a lot of good work and that it helps people and, but actually don't talk about Jesus no I, I admire the good work you do but don't go all weird on me so how can we commit how can we commit how can we, how can we actually show that commitment how can we show that we're not trying to save our own lives we are we're prepared to lose our lives to Christ in order to save it. Well, I've used the example of work with the, the questionnaire and my boss, thankfully, having the wisdom to say, don't commit to something you're not truly committed to. Sometimes, um, when I was an insurance broker, we used to get a client ring up and say, look, I'm not happy with my current broker. I want to change, and so I'm going to give you the chance to pitch for my business. And sometimes, often, 
they weren't happy with their broker because they felt that they weren't getting good service or they were paying too much money. That's normally what it came down to. And sometimes they were right and you'd think, yep, I, I know who your, who your broker is. Yeah, we can, we can better them. We can, we can win this. Fine. Other times you would think, I know who your broker is. I know that they're, they're very good. And I know that you're one of the problem clients. I know that that broker will be overjoyed to think that you might be walking out of the door and taking your business with you. And I'm not so keen on welcoming you into my portfolio because you're very needy and you don't bring in much income and you have a lot of claims and all that sort of thing. Um, you're, you're a headache. And so sometimes you, you take the phone call and you say, yeah, great, okay, we'd, we'd love to pitch for your business. And you'd set a date and you'd go and see them. And there were little things that we used to do and basically um, if, if, it was, if, if it was a... Um, piece of business that we really wanted, you'd send your best people. You'd send your best team. So I didn't get invited on those. No, I did. Um, but you, you'd send your best people and you'd put in all your time and your work. You would, you would commit to making sure that you didn't leave any stone unturned in your quest to win that business because it would be worth it. But if they were a headache, if they were a problem client that you didn't really want on your portfolio, then you would send somebody that you could afford to be without for a day and you would tell them because you always had to take these people out for lunch or something you would tell them look don't take them anywhere too nice don't make too good an impression the key is here to we don't want we don't want bad PR we don't want them talking to other companies and saying what an awful job we did we want to do just enough not to win their business and not once in my career did we ever win a piece of business that we, we hadn't fully committed to? We never had somebody say, do you know what, that, that lukewarm presentation and that pretty average lunch you took me for, that was amazing. Yes, please. Because they could tell that we weren't committed. They could tell that we, we didn't really want the business. People can tell when you're not committed. And so as Christians, when, we, when we're in that sort of situation, when someone says, look, why? Why on earth? Do you go to church? Why can't you stay out late on a Saturday night and have a few extra drinks? Why is it that you're at church in the morning? Why? What is it? That's the crunch. For a lot of us, that's the closest we'll get to, to the carrying our cross situation, to the, the, the burden, the difficulty, the, the really unpleasant, that conversation where you think, oh no, oh no, now I've got to explain it. How do I do this? What am I going to say again? Why? And you come away and you think, I haven't done, haven't done the gospel justice. I haven't explained that well enough. You see, our response, we're not all great orators. I struggle with that. I struggle when, when someone says, come on in, right, you've got two minutes, tell me why. And you think, two minutes, there's so much, just, what do I talk about? And often, often, you start talking about what a church, it does all this youth work, it helps all these vulnerable people, it provides all this, um, all this support for people who would struggle otherwise. And you think, it's all about works, works, works. But actually, works don't get us to salvation. Works don't bring people to Christ. We've got to be committed to Christ. Like Roger said earlier, when he stood on the chair and he said, this is what it costs to be a follower of Christ. The church 
does brilliant work. Of course it does. And we should be proud of that and we should look to encourage and embrace it. But I find so often that that, the quote um, that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, um, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. It's a lovely quote because I think what he probably meant to say was um, practice what you preach. But that's been interpreted by an awful lot of churches as an excuse not to talk about the cross. An excuse not to talk about Jesus. To say, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm serving in this way. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but what I am saying is it's not going to bring people to Christ. We need to commit to the cross. We need to commit to Jesus. Everything else is a byproduct of our faith, but the essence of our faith is the cross, is Jesus sacrificed and risen again the resurrected Christ. So how can we commit? In the workplace, you might have a Christian calendar on your desk. You might just throw church into conversation on a Monday morning. You might have to pray with somebody if they're going through a difficult time. I had a colleague once who, when he and his wife were having their first child, I just sent him a message just saying, um, thinking of you and praying for you at the moment. And he said to me afterwards, I really appreciate that. He said, I don't quite know what it means. I don't think anyone's prayed for me before, but, but I know that it means a lot to you and it's something special, so thank you. And that, that's great. That's good. We can commit socially when we spend time with friends. One thing, when I, when I, first, um, when I first got to, know, got to know Ian, I noticed that whenever he was out somewhere and food got brought to a table, casually as anything, he'd just go, oh, look at that, thank you, Lord, let's tuck in. It was as simple as that. But with a table of non-Christians, thank you, Lord. You're giving, you're giving thanks. And it might be that no one bats an eyelid, in which case it hasn't really achieved anything. But often... People were like, oh, don't start that again. Why not? And immediately, it's dialogue. Dialogue begins. It's an opportunity to speak about faith. It's about stepping out and taking that risk, putting ourselves in that situation. The Bible says we should love one another. Love one another. Well, if we truly love our friends, the people that that we spend time with, the people that we we choose to invite into our homes to, to, to break bread with, if we really love them and if we're really committed to the cross, if we're really committed to the resurrected Christ, to the Holy Spirit, then we would introduce our loved ones to it. And yet we've all got people in our lives that we're very close to, that we love, that we haven't ever spoken about, spoken about our faith with. Why is that? Why is it so hard? Well, it's because that's the cross that we have to bear. That is the cross that we have to carry. And yet we should carry it knowing we're following Jesus' instruction and Jesus' example. We can commit financially. When you book a holiday or something, how do you commit? You pay a deposit. You pay a deposit and in this, in this world, you know, if you're, if you're buying your brand new Fiesta or if you're paying for a holiday, whatever it happens to be, you pay a deposit. 
And normally that's, that's a commitment. It's non-returnable, non-refundable. You say, I'm going I'm to go on that holiday. Yep, I'm not going to let you down at the last minute. And here's, here's a deposit to guarantee it. And in church, although we can't put down a deposit financially, we can commit, we can show that commitment to Jesus by by opening up these doors, these opportunities, by having these conversations, by throwing in these references to to, to Jesus, to church, through opening the doors, trying to give, give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to work. It really stuck with me. I think I've said this before, where... um, in Electorate College a couple of months ago, um, we were talking about evangelism and how difficult it can be. And the lecturer said, look, people make the mistake. They make the mistake of finishing an evangelistic event and thinking, well, that's failed, no one's coming to church. He said, evangelism cannot fail unless you just don't do it. Because evangelism is giving God the opportunity to work. And so if, if you speak to 100 people and... In God's timing, it's not the right time for them to to come to church or if their hearts are hardened, you've given him the opportunity to work. And that's why in in your churches, this lecturer was saying, in your churches, don't ever feel that you've failed with evangelism. So in our families, we commit to one another, don't we? It's slightly more intimate, perhaps, than than the friendship um, with our without our spouses or, or, or um, children. We commit to them. And it's quite an intimate commitment there. It's a commitment with, with a very personal edge. If I'm not committed to Joe, my wife, then I don't notice when she's under the weather. I don't notice when she's sad and miserable and a bit distant. I don't notice when something's bothering her because I'm not committed. I don't ask. And so eventually a, a gap can open. And before I know it, the relationship is suffering. And so a husband and wife or, or a parent and child, whatever the relationship should be, we should be committed to one another. We should be, we should be making sure that we're paying attention, that we're looking after each other. In the same way with God, we can make sure that that relationship doesn't suffer. If we're feeling miserable and distant one day, we need to get into the habit of bringing ourselves in prayer to address that situation, to just talk it through. We need to commit. Commit to that bond. Commit to our Heavenly Father. And encourage others to do the same. Someone said to me a little while ago, um, church is like Marmite, you love it or you hate it. And I thought, well, that's only, that's only because sometimes we get church wrong. That's only because sometimes people can muddy the waters. Hopefully most of the time we get it right. Hopefully most of the time the, the good things that happen in church are what stick in the mind, but it's not always the case. But what doesn't change, what isn't Marmite, is God. God doesn't change. He's the same now as he was when we were going through a bad patch when we felt distant and unloved. And he was the same then as he was when we first came to faith, when we were just engulfed and and filled with the Holy Spirit and his love. God hasn't changed, but we go through our ups and downs. 
And we need to stay committed throughout all those times. You see, when Jesus told the parable of the, the good shepherd going out in search of the one sheep when the other 99 were safe, not settling for that, instead wanting to make sure that the lost sheep was found. That's commitment. It's an example of commitment. We spoke about the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan showed a commitment that others hadn't. A commitment to, to, to someone who was suffering, who was in pain. Someone who could have been left for dead. The Samaritan was committed. We too are called to be committed. Because of course, Jesus on the cross was commitment personified. Maybe a slightly more helpful word instead of commitment is devotion. Because devotion seems to have about it an element of of the love. That commitment can be very contractual. Commitment, I'm committed to do this, therefore I'll do it. Devotion works on a slightly deeper level. I'm devoted to this person and so I'm going to help them. I'm devoted to this cause and so I'm going to serve it. And so let's make sure that we we are as devoted to Jesus as he was to us. Because on that cross, we are the reason why he went to the cross. We are the reason why he carried that cross. We are the reason why he died on that cross. The reason for the suffering, the reason for the pain. We are the reason. Because he loves us so much. He saw us as good value for money. When he took that cross and he was nailed to it, He said, this is worth it. This is worth it. Every single one of the people that has ever set foot on this earth, that is on this earth now, that ever will set foot on this earth in the future, every single one of them is worth it. Is worth me going through this. And that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. It is the most humbling thing that we can imagine. Somebody saying, you are so worth it. You're good value for money. I'm going to go through this for you. We often find, don't we, that at work, if you don't commit to a client pitch, you don't get the client. If you want a holiday or a car or something like that, you turn up at the last minute and say, can I buy that? No, you didn't put a deposit down. You weren't committed. Listening to cricket commentary, you often hear a commentator say, he wasn't fully committed to that shot. That's why, that's why he caught an edge and got caught out behind. He wasn't fully committed. Changed his mind at the last minute. You see, if we don't commit to something... We don't get the reward that we would have had. Christianity is the same. If we don't commit fully, then the treasures stored up in heaven don't get stored up in the same way. Just like 
the child with the two bits of fruit from the stocking, who is so desperate to cling on to the magic of Christmas that they let them sit there and fester and rot until eventually they have to be thrown away. The child that never actually gets to, to eat the apple or enjoy the satsuma. Instead, it's just waste. What waste? And so the challenge through this passage for us today, we've got all these good initiatives, all these good works. We support all these missionaries across the world. That's fantastic. Let's keep doing it. Let's commit to supporting them. But let's commit more to the cross and what it means for us, to the fact that that cross is empty, to the fact that that cross is no longer a symbol of of death and pain and suffering, but instead it's a a symbol of positive, good news. It's a symbol that, that lifts our spirits. It's a symbol that reminds us that we are saved because we are worth it, because Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for us. He was so devoted to us. So let's devote ourselves back to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the empty cross and for what it means to us. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into this earth. We thank you for the opportunity at Christmas to remember the the circumstances of his birth, the prophecies fulfilled. And we give thanks now that that baby grew up, walked amongst us, taught amongst us, new temptation, new abandonment, and eventually new pain, suffering, heartbreak, scorn, ridicule, all the things that we live in fear of. Father, help us to be released from that fear because we are followers of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, help us to take up our cross, to take up the challenge of what it is to be a Christian in this country, in this place, in this day and age. And help us to to commit because we are devoted to you. And we know that you are devoted to us too. Father, give us courage, give us strength to recognise the opportunities that you bring our way to begin conversations with friends or family, to invite people to church, to services, to invite them to to the Alpha course or to different outreach events that we run, just to do something, to give you the chance to tap into their lives, to reach out to them, to speak to them. Father, we are your servants and we pray that you will help us to serve you as best we can. In Jesus' name, Amen.